All right. Well, welcome to Boiled Down, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association's podcast. We have Rich Menegello, attorney at law with Fisher Phillips here today. Welcome, Rich. Thank you. And you pronounced the name correctly. That's I, the hardest part of the whole podcast, I, I'm sure. I tried. Yeah. I, I didn't get a phonetic spelling this time, but I, I'm pretty sure I've got it down now. Good work. It's because he's back again. We had him a year ago on our first one, right? Yes, absolutely. The inaugural one. Yes, I, I actually was joking with Rich when we did that podcast that he was going to be my Alec Baldwin a la Saturday Night Live and, and would make the most guest appearances in the history of the show. So, uh, so far, it so far. Yeah, you're, you're number the, two. it's number two. Yeah. So you're leading the pack. When we get to um, number five, I want one of those jackets with okay. the big five on it. <laughs> I think we can arrange for something right. like that. And joining us today is Sarah Shank uh, from the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And Sarah, I always just call you the social media queen. Um, I think we have different titles for you, though. Do you want to give us what your actual title is? Uh, I, I, I think I'm going to stick with that one, actually. I like it. It works for me. Well, we're here today uh, with Rich and Sarah to kind of revisit the subject that we talked about a year ago, the Trump administration. Uh, it's a year later, and we kind of wanted to look back and see how accurate you were in some of your predictions. Yeah, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm gonna excited. Put, I'm going to put it on you entirely, not me. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have any predictions, so uh, don't listen to that first podcast again. But yeah, there you go. Um, and then uh, talk a little bit about what is actually happening right now with that administration, and even look ahead to the future and maybe make some new predictions. So uh, it'll be kind of like the Super Bowl. We'll we'll figure out what it's going to be, uh, what the score is going to be, kind of a thing. I didn't get the score right, but I did pick the Eagles. Yeah. Well, I think everybody picked. The Eagles, yeah, even some so. of the Patriots fans. So yeah. <laughs> I, I heard Giselle had a thousand on the Eagles, but anyway. Well, let's uh, let's jump right into that. So, uh, hey, right and wrong. We've got a couple of things here. Um, Andrew Puzder, as the new Department of Labor head, would shake up the department. That was your prediction. And yeah, there it was. I remember that. I mean, I, I remember we were sitting here talking about, wow, if you, if you separate out your personal feelings about the administration, how you felt about Trump. You had to be excited uh, in in our industry in that you had a hotelier as the new, new, uh, new president and then a restaurateur as the head of the Department of yeah. Labor. What an exciting time. And then his, of all the potential candidates for the cabinet, his was the one that went down in flames, <laughs> which is probably... You know, one of the more surprising ones because he was, I thought, one of the least controversial folks out there. Yeah. But... Well, and that was early on in the administration, and there was a lot of scrutiny about certain things there. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cer- certainly, um, maybe didn't didn't shake up the department in the way we thought. But no, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it got it got shaken up, but not in the way we thought. So yeah, his, his he didn't even get off the ground. And then uh, in April, Alexander Acosta was actually confirmed and or nominated, and then confirmed, and he's been the head of uh, the DOL since then, and not exactly the same type we thought. That we thought poster would be, yeah. Certainly. So, and and there is some controversy with the DOL, which we'll get to a little later in the podcast right now, but uh, that affects our industry as yeah. it, as it were. But Absolutely. I think so far, Acosta's been uh, pretty good uh, in the position, and and yeah, I would agree. I mean, look, he and Poster are similar in that they're both carrying out the mission of, of being business friendly, right? I mean, I, I think that's something you could expect with any anybody from this administration. But personality perspective, he's the complete total opposite of, of Puzder. I mean, whereas Puzder is this uh, sort of larger-than-life, charismatic guy, captain of industry type, uh, Acosta is this sort of wonkish technocrat, right? He come he came from government background. He, uh, he was in academia. This is not... This is a thoughtful, conservative, sort of slow-moving guy. And if there has been criticism of him, it's been that uh, the Department of Labor hasn't moved as quickly to slice away some of the regulations and really 
peel back a lot of the stuff that was encumbering businesses that they thought the Department of Labor would do. So um, overall, from an employer's perspective, positive. I'd give them you know, a B or a B plus. Um, but we'll see. Uh, the one thing I'm sure we're going to talk about pretty soon might be a huge roadblock in terms of his long-term success. Yeah, uh, and certainly not the kind of personality that you'd put on the Celebrity Apprentice. I'm guessing. Right. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. This guy. <laughs> this guy is not going to be uh, doing tell-all books. I think anytime soon. <laughs> well, let's talk about the next one, which was the overtime rule. Uh, the prediction was that it would probably be scrapped and that before the end of the Trump administration, we would have a new salary level below the planned 47000 And uh, you knocked that one out of the park. Yeah, I got that one right. I mean, at, at the time last year, a court had temporarily blocked it. And we knew the new DOL chief would be coming in. And, and my suspicion would be that uh, they would uh, scrap it. And that's what happened. Acosta did scrap it. It took longer. Again, that's one of the ones people were... Um, uh, I don't want to say upset about, but a little anxious because it took him a while to do Less it. than pleased. Right. There you go. That's a good way to put it. But he finally came through um, and scrapped it. And he did it in a very thoughtful way. Um, he wanted to get all his ducks in a row from a regulatory perspective. So uh, it was scrapped, and he's put out a, um, a new notice of rulemaking saying um, we're going to be writing a whole new rule. And everything's on the table. So it's not just the salary level that had been the sticking point at this last rule or the, or the main impetus of the of last rule. Instead, everything is on the table when it comes to overtime and your eligibility for it as an employee. So it's sort of some ways exciting for employers because duties might duties tests might change or there might be other avenues to uh, to characterize employees in a way that's both good for them and good for a business. Now, here's again, I want to say the bad news, but Sticking with the theme of Acosta being a little bit more slow, uh, the last word is that we expect that new rule to be unveiled uh, by October 2018. Okay. Um, so if I'm here again next February, <laughs> we might still say, oh, any day now it could come out. And now once it comes out, that doesn't mean the rule is final. It then has to go through uh, a, a final period where it might be legally challenged. Sure. So. Uh, I still think that there will be a final rule in place by the time Trump's administration's over, or let's say by the next the 2020, <laughs> Yeah, uh, if I want to hedge my bets. And um, and I definitely think it'll be lower than the, that salary level is going to be lower than the 47,000 that had been floated. If I was a betting man, I'd say it's somewhere between 32 and 35,000. Yeah, I think the, the number I've been hearing is 33 uh, coming out of D.C., and that seems like a kind of a compromise between where it was at, you know, 23, 9, or 24, and then up to the almost 48,000 that it was where they doubled it. So, right, right. Uh, somewhere kind of in that, that middle range seems to be what they've, they've been looking for. But some people are worried because Acosta has made some noise saying that he thinks that annual three-year look to potentially update it, i.e. raise it, would be something he'd retain. Mm-hmm. And employers aren't necessarily happy about that. Sure. Um, so it's one of those things where he takes a more pragmatic approach. And again, employers, I think, should be overall happy with him. But we'll see once the final rule comes out. Yeah. Well, and obviously, again, compared with the speed or the demeanor of the president, uh, he can be seen as the kind of the tortoise and the hare almost, right? I mean, you've got a president who's tweeting every morning about what's going on and making decisions based on what he sees on the television, uh, supposedly. Yeah. And uh, and then you've got a Department of Labor secretary who is uh, taking a more measured approach to how he's how he's dealing with these changes. And I'll be honest, I don't follow Alexander Acosta on Twitter. I 
don't know if he's on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. We uh, we'll have to look into that, right, Sarah? I bet. I bet I have more followers on Twitter than he does. I'm just going to lay it out there at PDX Labor Lawyer. Yes, I'm pitching that right now. Absolutely, on Twitter, PDX Labor Lawyer. And and the information that you have out there is really good, actually. Uh, not, actually not, not to thank sound you. surprised. <laughs> Thank you. For not, that. Not, not to sound surprised, <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank yeah. You. Uh, you know, some attorneys can be a little dry. Uh, I've heard and, that, and uh, that's not the case. Absolutely. So yes, please uh, follow Rich on Twitter at PDX Labor Lawyer. So, so uh, next prediction we had was about pay equity, right? Yes. Uh, so you predicted expanded EEO one would be out, but Oregon would pass something with more teeth in 2017. Knocked that one out of the park. Yes, you did. Completely right. So. Yeah, to recap, that EEO one form is one that employers of a certain size have to put out every year and submit to the government, talking about um, salary level uh, or providing demographic data. And what had been proposed and was on the eve of passage was um, the rule would have forced employers to include detailed pay information. Um, broken down by demographic data, which would have really provided a treasure trove of information for plaintiffs' attorneys, courts, agency investigators uh, to, to examine somebody's pay structure and really through a very broad lens make bad assumptions about whether there's um, gender pay disparity uh, at a workplace. So um, Employers were up in arms over it because even though it was a laudable goal, they didn't think it was the right way to get there, and it was super, super cumbersome in terms of collecting the data. So um, the good news is that um, that was scrapped very early on in the Trump administration, and um, from a pay equity perspective, there's not a ton going on at the federal level. But what has happened, and this is something we talked about last year, um, filling in the gaps are the states. And the states in the past year have gone whole hog in terms of pushing um, legislation and regulations aimed at reducing the pay gap. And in ways that, quite honestly, are probably more efficient and better equipped to take out pay gaps than this incredibly cumbersome reporting mechanism. And the, pay, and the main ones are sort of the ones followed by Oregon, which is eliminating the ability of employers to ask about pay history uh, during the hiring process, um, which is what Oregon passed. Yeah. And if you'd like more information on that, we just did a boiled down podcast, our last one actually, with Ann Milligan from Fisher Phillips and Jennifer Nelson from Ogletree Deacons. So you can check us out. Um, we go into that in depth on that podcast. And um, you're right. The the states, uh, Oregon seems to be a leader now in the protected classes and in uh, not asking for certain information, uh, including the salary history um, and not asking that in an interview question or on your job application. So um, so you got that one right. So you're so far you're two for three. Yeah, no, I feel pretty good that's, about that. That's not bad. But you know what? There's another one that on the topic of pay equity, you were saying something about a March 2018 deadline. Do you remember that? Was that March 2018 mm-hmm. deadline for? I'm not sure entirely what it was. The, from the podcast last yeah, time. Yeah, you did slip a reference in there about flying cars, and I'll give you credit for that. Oh one. yeah, okay. Because <laughs> we got we got the Tesla in space. So yeah, so there you go. I got the flying car right. That's <laughs> yeah. good. That's good. With David Bowie playing, right? Yes. There you go. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Following up on another one though, immigration. Uh, the prediction was that the administration would take a, and I, I believe this is your word, pragmatic right. a- approach yeah. with an understanding of how important workers are to the economy. Yeah, I got that one 100% wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, again, I think part of that was at the time we thought, this is an excuse, but at the time we thought you you put Puzder in place who um, really I think had, had made, a, had 
had said a lot. He was a frequent commentator on Fox News and MSNBC and, and previous um, uh, talk shows and talked about the importance of um, of immigration and to the extent that undocumented workers are sort of vital to certain industries that we should take a more pragmatic approach rather than just saying, hey, let's kick everybody out of the country. Um, and, and there were two things that two assumptions that I got wrong at the time. Number one, that Puzder would be in place. Right. Right. But number two, that Trump and his administration would even care what the Department of Labor thought about it, because honestly, I have no idea what Alexander Acosta thinks about immigration, because it doesn't really matter, because the kinds of policies that the president and his his administration have put into place regarding immigration have really nothing to do with the Department of Labor. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what we're looking at right now is I probably... I don't remember if we talked about this specifically, but it looks like we're getting more and more momentum for having mandatory e-verify, right? Mm -hmm. The mandatory electronic um, submission of of worker information to a main database that will immediately flash whether or not the person is eligible or not to work in the U.S. That, I think, if I hadn't been asked about it, I probably would have said, yeah, we're heading towards it. What I really didn't predict is the uh, uh, ferocity with which the administration has taken on... um, uh, immigration and most aptly exemplified, I think, by the uh, raids of 7-Eleven that happened a couple weeks ago. Yeah, um, And that's something that I think all employers should be worried about because um, especially if you're a franchise model, you can definitely be guilty by uh, the sins of your uh, neighbor. Yep. And um, but and I thought this was really interesting. The, the, so the administration, following the Seven Eleven raids, said, "Hey, look, we're going to take a three prong approach to immigration enforcement now. So all employers to pay attention. Number one, we're going to do compliance through I nine inspections and raids. Like, all right, that's great. Uh, I nine inspections. We'd hope we'd all have them up to snuff, and you should be doing yourself auditing and all that. Okay." Number two, we're going to do enforcement through arrests of not only workers who are not here uh, in the country legally, but employers who knowingly employ them. Okay, that's a little scary when you think about that as well. And then number three, we're going to do outreach to educate you about things, which is like, oh, thank you for the the raids and arrests, but then also we're going to educate you. So, yeah, employers really, there's never been a, a more difficult time to be an employer when it comes to un- undocumented workers and the concerns that you might have if, yeah. if you suspect that you have uh, workers who aren't eligible to be working in the country and during the hiring process. And, you know, do you need to be like the bouncer at the bar looking at uh, credentials with a, you know, a, a blue light to make sure that all of the everything is accurate or do you need to sort of stick your head in the sand and hope that everything's okay? Well, the good news is not to sound like a broken record, but we have a podcast on uh, how, how to uh, prepare yourself for those I-9 uh, visits uh, from the ICE agents and what you can do, what you can't do, uh, what you should do. Uh, and so again, if you want to go down uh, and listen to the Boil Down podcast on immigration, follow that, look it up. Uh, you'll get a lot more information than we can get into today. But um, yeah, certainly uh, a little bit of a carrot and stick approach there with the uh, we're going to do raids, but we also want to give you this nice pamphlet to teach you about uh, what's what's right and what's not. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Re- you can read the pamphlet while you're in jail. That's right. <laughs> they will <laughs> well, let you take it into the cell. Or trade you. it for a pack of cigarettes, whatever you <laughs> yeah, got to do, yeah, right? Yeah. So the last one we had here uh, was joint employment. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, might reverse the broad standard. And again, you got this one right. Yeah, so three out of five. Not bad. Five. Yeah, Not bad. Four out of uh, six if we give you the flying car sure. up in space. Yeah, yeah, I'll take and that. And I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'll take That's, it. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, we were pretty enthused about this. So for, to take a step back, um, 
some people might some sort of tune out if you hear NLRB knowing it has something to do with laborers and unions. But there's a ton that the National Labor uh, Relations Board does that impacts all employers, whether you're unionized or not. So pay attention whether you have unions or not. Um, for years, the um, NLRB had been controlled by Democratic appointees, and it's a three to two skew. And so they passed a lot of sort of pro-worker um, standards that really tilted the playing field to an uneven basis. And probably from an employer's perspective, this one of the things that, that personifies it the most was this joint employer standard, where they said, um, if you had the right to exert control over an employee uh, or a worker that wasn't even your worker through some sort of joint employment arrangement. It could even be, and I think for, for restaurants and lodging, it's more of a franchise arrangement. Mm-hmm. You could be held to be a joint employer, and that could hurt not only from a unionization perspective of folks joining forces who aren't even really employed by you, but from a liability and compliance perspective. Um, just a few weeks ago, the NLRB, it took some time, but the NLRB's pushed then to a three to two standard Republican employee uh, appointees versus Democrat. And uh, they scrapped that standard and they reverted back to a more traditional one that said they will look at if you have actually exercised control over these workers to determine whether or not they are your employees and whether you're a joint employer. And it has to be direct and immediate control, not something limited and and, and irregular. So, um, yeah, great news for employers. It's sort of, again, evening out the playing field once again to a, to a more rational and reasonable standard that we're happy about. Yeah, rational and reasonable, good words. Uh, we, we would love to keep using those for the next couple of years yeah. rather, rather than the unpredictable term that we uh, exactly we had last time and I think uh, probably still applies today. So Common sense is not necessarily common when it comes to government regulations, <laughs> I've found. That's so, right. Yeah. Well, that's a good place for us to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue with Rich and a couple of things that we are also keeping an eye on here at the at the Trump administration. So we'll be right back. Are you in need of quality food handler training and certification? Orla is one of the largest and first providers of online food handler training in Oregon. Approved by the state, Orla's food handler training is quick and simple to complete, with online courses available 24-7. Training and certification costs only $9, and the card is valid statewide for three years. Get started today at OregonFoodHandler.com. All right, welcome back to Boil Down, the podcast for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. I'm Greg Astley, your host, Director of Government Affairs. I've got Sarah Schenk, our social media queen from Orla, and Rich Menigello from Fisher Phillips. And Rich, let's talk for just a second about an issue that um, I don't know how near and dear it is to the hearts of uh, too many employers, but uh, Jeff Sessions' view on recreational and medical marijuana and how that might impact employers here. Yeah, so sitting here a year ago, I'm guessing Sessions had been nominated by that point. I don't know if he was in in office, but we um, certainly at that time we were um, curious about what the administration's stance might be regarding recreational medical marijuana because Sessions, when he was a senator, was on record of saying things like, quote, good people don't smoke marijuana and uh, equated marijuana use with heroin use and things like that. So he uh, sort of came through, I guess, on his promise of going as far as he could, or not as far as he could, but pushing pretty hard by releasing this memo several weeks ago, essentially saying that uh, the Department of Justice had the right, if they wanted to, to enforce federal law, which mm-hmm. still criminalizes marijuana, and that he didn't care a lick about what states passed in terms of their laws, recreational or medical marijuana, and uh, those who dabbled in it were still violating federal law. 
which for a couple hours, I think, threw some people into a, a bit of a tizzy. But a lot of the state attorneys general, including uh, the, the Oregon um, federal attorney general, essentially said, look, we're not, don't worry about it. We don't have the resources essentially to fund us busting pot shops and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I know we're not advising those who are in the, the field of selling or providing marijuana, but from an employer's perspective, it's interesting to just keep an eye on because there's an increasing number, I think, of employers out there that are taking a more relaxed approach about things and maybe saying, you know, don't ask, don't tell almost when it comes to whether their employees, especially those in the back of the house, are, are maybe using marijuana off duty. Um, I would say what the, the newer trend we're seeing and more and more states are passing laws that are protecting the off duty use of marijuana and saying you as an employer would have to prove aff- affirmatively that an employee is impaired while at work if you want to take some dif- disciplinary action against them. Yeah. Um, so it's worth keeping an eye on. And I would say in the next year, we might see some movement towards it. Uh, I haven't seen anything bubbling up in the legislature during the short, sh- short session now, but I could see within the next year to 18 months some momentum uh, building for something like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, you use that term impaired. I recently had a, a phone call uh, actually from a restaurant owner who had an employee collapse out in the alleyway after drinking too many energy drinks and <laughs> possibly taking something else. Yeah. Uh, and this owner wondered if they could ban their employees from drinking too many energy drinks. And I said, well, I'll double check on this, but my feeling would be it's a legal substance um, that what you'd have to go with is the standard of if you are impaired at work for whatever reason uh, and you cannot perform those duties or it's a safety issue for you or, or your other fellow coworkers, um, you can be asked to to leave that shift and you know come back when you're in your right mind, so to speak. So yeah. I, I would see that this would fall under the the same uh, kind of a standard. Um, interesting too, because we're seeing um, some of these pairings with marijuana and food that private chefs are doing. And yeah, there's some concern about liability if somebody does uh, you know a gummy bear in the parking lot that has CBD in it, then comes in and has a glass of wine, and then decides to drive home. Uh, the CBD can take two hours sometimes to take effect. Um, so leading people to pop three or four gummy bears, possibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as as owners, uh, especially of restaurants, you know, you may have to keep a log, a better track uh, on your log of who is impaired and how much you've served. And uh, hopefully that doesn't become a problem, but um, certainly is is a potential issue for us in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll have to look to see whether or not any of my clients have zero tolerance policies for Mountain Dew. Because <laughs> I'm unaware of any right now, but I could see that I could see that coming into play. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting phone call. Uh, yeah. I hope I steered her in the right direction. So. Yeah. So tip pulling, do we want to talk about that? Want to catch us up on what's been going on the February 5th deadline? We just had to submit comments on the right. proposal. Yeah, I guess we have to talk about it, huh? This is one of these weird things. I've been practicing employment law for over 20 years, right? And it gets somewhat technical sometimes, and sometimes a little bit wonkish and I sort of appreciate it and um, I enjoy talking to clients about this in-depth sort of stuff. Every once in a while we reach this point where something that we all talk about as insiders becomes in the mainstream news. Yeah. And when that happens, I, I almost invariably cringe because the the nuance and depth aren't there. You've got reporters and people talking about it and internet commenters. And I I make the mistake of reading the comments occasionally, (laughs) right? And then I need to scrub out my eyes with bleach. But um, we've reached the point now where tip pooling has become associated with 
this evil, the, the evil Trump administration is trying to steal money from uh, the, the pocketbooks of our you know, hardworking uh, waiters and waitresses, and it needs to be stopped. And nowhere in any of these um, stories do I see anybody talking about the fact that this is really just an attempt to revert to a standard that had been in place for decades. Right. And that it was only through a very weird combination of an odd Department of Labor rule that that was sort of forced through and a, a court that went way out on a limb. Do we even have this situation now where employers don't feel comfortable with the tip pooling arrangement? So um, anyway, it's been very frustrating as uh, a representative of employers and somebody that likes the law to be reading stuff on the internet uh, in the past month or two about tip pooling. Now, that being said, and forgive me, have you guys talked about in a prior podcast about how the Department of Labor has uh, what they did in terms of the, the 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 data on tip pooling. Not not recently. We give updates in our advocacy watch about what's happening with the tip pooling regulations. Okay, okay. And and you're right. The, the misinformation is the the biggest issue that we face. The fact that reporters don't seem to be able to actually look into the issue and realize that this really only affects the seven states that don't have a tip credit. Right. Six of those seven states actually have laws that prohibit managers and employers from taking those tips. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It, that's it. Doesn't make for a good story, though. Obviously, any of those things. Of course, so that's not. why that's why we're seeing such uh, problems with it. However, uh, what broke a couple of weeks ago for those who are who are not following it closely is that there's some evidence potentially that the Department of Labor skewed their skewed the numbers, or at least tried to manipulate or change around the data that you need to put out whenever you're passing a new regulation that right. shows the economic impact to make it look like. Um, they were softening the numbers to make it look better for uh, for workers. And if this is true, we could see a scandal in the Department of Labor, right? This goes nowhere near anything involving a porn star or money to, <laughs> to Russian um, spies or anything like that. But it could be its own scandal, the Department of Labor. I don't know if it'll lead to Acosta being uh, pushed out of the agency again. Um, I don't even know if Trump remembers. He's. I was going to say, if he is, it'll take a long time, right? <laughs> yeah. Slow and steady. He's, there's about eight cabinet members in line before <laughs> him, but uh, before he gets axed. But I think from an employer's perspective, all, all kidding aside, this misreporting combined with the uh, number fudging might lead enough momentum for people to push back in in Congress and to say, look, we don't want you to, to push this tip pooling regulation the way we all expected it to go. Sure. And that's that's where things could be problematic for uh, Oregon restaurants. Right. Are we marking that down as a prediction then? Is that could that be okay, okay. If I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna predict I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that gosh, I mean think about it. There's so much stuff. If this were a normal administration, you would say, wow, there's no way they're gonna be able to survive this. And I would say if this were a normal administration, yeah, there's gonna be enough pressure on them. But um, I'm going to say, uh, yeah, I'm going to say that despite all the heat they're facing, they're still going to force it through because there's going to be another scandal a day later that people are going to turn their heads from this and, yeah. and not worry about it. Uh, that seems to be the MO. Just move on to the next thing. Yeah. There's nothing to see here. So I'm, I'm going to agree with you on that yeah. one. Moving on. Yes. Let's talk about something else that uh, is current. Let's talk about Me Too, the hashtag Me Too movement. Uh, so could you tell us a bit about what impact this is going to have on confidentiality agreements or arbitration agreements? Yeah, really good timing uh, in terms of having me on right now because um, just something broke within the last couple of days that I think is pretty uh, pretty interesting. So taking a step back, everybody I'm sure knows about the Me Too mo movement now. It impacts all industries. I mean, high, some high-profile chefs have been caught mm -hmm. up in this, right? 
Um, and it's really unlike anything that I've ever seen because it's so sustained its momentum. And not just it's not just in the news, but it's now in state legislators' um, wheelhouse. It's in in front of Congress. Um, employers. It's in boardrooms all across the country where employers, large employers, are taking proactive steps to change their policies, um, really to to just provide a more professional working environment uh, in ways that go well above and beyond anything the law requires, right? Mm -hmm. So we're now at a stage where the only thing that's really happened to date, um, besides the fact that I think employers are more likely to get sued today than they were a year ago for sexual harassment, the only thing that's really happened to date is that um, in the new tax reform law that passed in, um, was that late December, early January? Mm -hmm. Can you remember now? Um, There is a provision that says employers can no longer deduct the amount of settlements um, they might have paid out for sexual harassment cases, which... You know, ultimately, it's a it's a small thing, but it's it's the start of something showing that sure. that, that employers are concerned. State uh, legislators across the country are starting to pass proposed laws um, that that somehow impact employers in the Me Too movement. So far, nothing's happened in Oregon, but the Oregon Attorney General, along with um, the attorneys general for literally every state, all fifty states plus District of Columbia plus five or six territories, hmm. just sent a letter to Congress on Monday. Uh, Monday, February 12th, saying, we want you to pass legislation that would prohibit employers from requiring uh, employees to go to mandatory arbitration in cases involving sexual harassment and maybe gender discrimination. Hmm. Um, now, they didn't provide specifics and they didn't say exactly what kind of law they want passed. Be, uh, there, there are a few bills floating around in Congress right now that were proposed in the fall uh, that would do that sort of thing. A couple others that would also um, prohibit uh, non-disclosure or confidentiality agreements in cases of sexual harassment. Um, but what could happen is that within a, within a short amount of time, you could see uh, employers being prohibited from either enforcing arbitration agreements when it comes to sexual harassment claims, um, or maybe even being prohibited from entering into these uh, arbitration agreements to begin with. Sure. Um, and and you know it's something we've recommended for for decades for employers to enter into because it's more cost efficient, uh, it, more speedy, um, and and really sometimes in a, a more fair way to solve. Uh, legal matters than having to drag them into very costly and and difficult um, court proceedings. But yeah, this could change the whole game when it comes to arbitration agreements. So are you willing to make a prediction on that or should we just wait and see what's going to happen? Yeah, I'm going to predict that there will be something passed on this. There's enough momentum out there. There are enough uh, uh, corporate boardrooms that are starting to pass these things voluntarily anyway. Um, I'd say... I don't know if it'll be in effect by the time if I come back here a year from now, but I would say by 2019, there'll be some sort of prohibition um, on arbitration agreements involving sex harassment cases. All right. We're writing this all down, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Rich, let's talk for a second about uh, the NLRB, again, the National Labor Relations Board, relaxing the standard on workplace rules and what that means for uh, employers. Yeah, sure. So uh, I don't know if we talked about this a year ago, but... Um, for years, the NLRB, again, tilting the playing field more towards the workers and unions, had had enforced the standard that said, if you have a workplace rule that an employee could reasonably construe as impacting their rights to organize uh, a union or just organize together to, to bring a workplace complaint uh, to your um, t- to their employer's feet, that um, 
that rule would have to be uh, held to be illegal. Again, this this involves any workplace out there, unionized or not. Um, and it sounds like an okay rule until it started to get applied, and it started to prevent employers from having things like workplace civility rules, mm-hmm. a rule that would say we expect all employees to get along with each other and be professional in the workplace and not be disruptive. Well, the NLRB said, you know what, the very nature of union organizing and, and, and bringing complaints to an employer's uh, attention might be disruptive. So a rule that says you got to be not disruptive in the workplace, that's illegal. Hmm. Uh, we had other rules that said um, you have to be confidential in terms of, uh, of um, dealings in the workplace and you can't take photographs, let's say, or recordings. Well, uh, the NLRB said you never know. Sometimes employers might need to take pictures of things in the workplace to prove uh, there were problems, um, and they might need to share information that you think is confidential in order to demonstrate that there are issues in that workplace. So any rule requiring confidentiality or prohibiting uh, workplace photos, those need to be scrapped. And this went on and on and on. Very normal rules that I would say 90% of employers out there had as of a couple of years ago. Common common sense rules, as, common as sense it were, rules, right? Yeah. Had to be scrapped. The good news is, uh, just a few weeks ago, the NLRB threw out that standard, and they returned to a common-sense, rational, reasonable rule that makes sense. It essentially says you look at the nature and extent of the possible impact that rule might have, and then look at their, if there are legitimate justifications for an employer to have that rule. And so the case that came down that involved uh, or, or that, that changed this rule involved Boeing. Um, you know, they're an aerospace contractor. Right. They have confidential high-level sorts of stuff. Kind of important documents that they keep secret. You would think. And the the new NLRB said, of course they can enforce a rule that says it. Now, if you can point us to an example where the enforcement of a certain aspect of that rule impacted somebody's union organizing rights, we'll consider scrapping it. But just generally, employers should be able to have these rights or these uh, policies in place, which is great because especially in light of the Me Too movement, we encourage employers to have general civility policies right. because you stop people from being uh, jerks at work. That's going to stop them from taking the next step and being harassers. Sure. So, um, yeah, that's an overwhelmingly positive ruling. Um, so no real prediction here other than that's going to introduce rational um, thought back into the workplace. And employers should take advantage if they change their policies in the last couple of years in um Reaction to the NLRB clamping down on them. Uh, talk to your lawyer uh, and and feel free to reintroduce those policies back into place. All right, revisit them and and take a look and see if it makes sense. Yep, great. Well, let's talk for a second about uh, predictive scheduling. Uh, as as we all know, and hopefully most of our listeners know, uh, Oregon became the first state in the United States of America to have a predictive scheduling law. Trailblazers once again. Yeah. I, you know, I once heard a lobbyist refer to Oregon as the Ricky Bobby of the 50 states <laughs> uh, because if we ain't first, we're last. There you go. <laughs> so we refuse to give up our self-serve uh, gasoline and we refuse to have a sales tax, yet we'll be first on the lines for things like the bottle bill, uh, the yep. you know, public beaches, and, and now, of course, predictive scheduling. Uh, so. Assisted suicide. Yeah. We're, we're staring down New Jersey right now in that gas, <laughs> pumping your own gas yeah. contest, aren't we? We're waiting yeah. for them to fold, and then we're going to fold. I but, don't know. I, you know, I read the stories, and, and the, you talked about the commenters online. Every time that comes up, my first thought is, what do you think people in Minnesota do when there's six feet of snow <laughs> and they get out and pump their own gas? Yeah. Uh, they just they just do it. But here, apparently, the smell 
of the gasoline potentially getting on your hands and the stuff that comes down out of the sky that's wet yeah. prohibits us from getting out of our cars. I, and- uh, I have a, my 16-year-old daughter just got her license, and uh, we're going to take a special trip to drive up in Vancouver just to teach her how to pump her own gas. Excellent. So we're excited about that. I like that. Yeah. That's a, It should be a rite of passage. Now, there are places that you can go here in Oregon, the tribal lands, for example, or certain parts of rural Oregon during certain times of the night when there aren't yeah. self-serve attendees. We could uh, also drive out to Enterprise at 2 in the morning that, and do it there, <laughs> but we might just do Vancouver on Saturday. That might be easier. Probably. Yeah. So predictive scheduling, what's uh, what do you think is going to be happening Wow. With that? Well, you know, so currently right now the the, you know, so for those who are unfamiliar, just in a nutshell, right, it requires you as an employer to provide a good faith estimate to new employees about what their schedule's got to be. You've got to provide schedule seven days in advance. Um, it, it prohibits cl- mandatory or forced clopenings. Um, and if you want to make changes to somebody's schedule, you got to jump through a million hoops. So um, the good news, if there is any, is that it only applies to employers that have 500 or more workers across the world. Right. So, um, you know, even if you're a small franchise um, or, or a small operation here in Oregon, but the, your, your parent company has hundreds of employees elsewhere, it, it will still impact you. Well, and in Oregon, we did take franchises out. Right. So that's so the, why I. Yeah. yeah that's why yep. I corrected myself. I was hoping it'd be edited out <laughs> through the magic of technology, but thanks for catching that. No problem. Um, I would say the bad news is, well, first of all, it's not going to be enforced until 2019, which will be here before you know it, but still. Um, we got a little bit of time. I'm going to guess what you're going to see is that it, that'll be in place for a year. Worker advocates are going to, are going to trumpet about how great this is, and then you're going to see some uh, nice stories in the news about how this permits workers more freedom and flexibility and it isn't this great everything's hunky-dory and by um the 2020 or probably 2021 legislative session they'll look about reducing that from 500 to somewhere else that's that's my that's where i guess things are going okay and that's fair i mean that's one of the things that a lot of our members were concerned about is you know we started that process with 25 employees um, and we were able to, through discussions and negotiations, get it up to 500. Yeah. But, of course, there is always the danger that now that that law is going to be in effect, you know, yeah, let's bump it down to 250 and then a few years later down to 100 or 50 and and how that's going to work. Uh, but obviously we're, we're keeping an eye on that. We do have rulemaking coming up uh, in mid-March. Uh, that'll be starting. I'll be on that rulemaking committee. And, and so we'll and Greg, be talking about it. let me ask you this. I, I can't remember. Does the law prohibit... Um, local jurisdictions from enforcing and creating their own predictive scheduling law? Yes, okay. it is a state preemption. So yeah. the state law uh, will overrule anything that would happen at the local level. And that that could be another negotiating point. I could imagine that. I could imagine them saying in 2020 or 2021 that uh, maybe maybe we should remove that and allow places like Portland or, or larger Eugene or um, larger populations to create their own. Yeah. Um, because again, there are other cities that have this across the country. We're right. the first state. Yeah. And we've seen some of the effects in those cities. San Francisco, for example, it's it's not working for either employers or employees. So it'll be interesting to see, much like marijuana with Colorado, Washington, and then Oregon coming on board, um, what we look like a year or two from now after it's taken effect and, and people have had some time to really digest what it meant for their their schedules. Yeah. Um, well, and, and you're going to see worker advocacy groups, I'm sure, are going to try to combat that, um, you know, the stories about how, how things are failing or not working with their own stories about how things are working. Sure. It's very much like the, the data we've seen um, up north to our friends in Washington about the $15 minimum wage around Seattle, where, 
you've seen a lot of people try to put out pieces talking about how this is great and it's a windfall and it's a win-win. Um, and a lot of employers are wondering where that data is coming from because it doesn't seem very win-win for them. Yeah. Well, the lesson there is just get whoever you think is going to say what you want to say in a study to write the study for you, right? Do do the poll. And uh, if you don't like what you're hearing initially, just go to somebody else. That's remarkably cynical of you, Greg. (laughs) I can't imagine. I can't can't believe that's coming from you. Uh, It's not all unicorns and rainbows, Rich. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Shocking. Uh, so we kind of touched on this one already, but uh, the White House and Department of Homeland Security have announced plans to change the legal immigration system, um, and this could result in increased compliance audits right. and DACA updates. Uh, so what does this mean for hospitality employers? And, and bef- before we jump into that, w- let's explain what DACA is yeah. for everybody. Sure. the uh, that's, that's deferred action for, for those individuals who are... Uh, in the country um, on an undocumented basis, but they've jumped through lots of hoops. They were, you know, a lot of them, you hear them being called dreamers. They were brought to the country when they were very young or they were born here, um, or they, um, and requ- and they have to, you know, demonstrate that they're not, they haven't violated any criminal laws and, and certain things have to do with employment aspects, those sorts of things. So these are not the bad hombres that the administration's worried about. Right. These are um, folks that, again, are, are following through a government program that was created, I think, in 2012 or 2013. So so what does that mean, the the, the changing that, that may happen at the federal level? What does that mean for the hospitality employers? And is there any way they can prepare for that? Yeah, sure. So I mean, I think I think the best thing to expect for employers when it comes to uh, DACA uh, recipients is complete uncertainty. Uh, unfortunately, this is something that seems to change on a on a daily basis. It's become a bargaining chip in terms of budget negotiations and. Um, Literally, literally every day there seems to be a new story about whether the administration and their Republicans in Congress are going to support meaningful reform, uh, even even what some might label as an amnesty kind of provision. Uh, and then the next day it's complete hardline stance. So we don't know, which means that you as an employer have to prepare for anything. Um, and you have to prepare for the fact that you may one day have workers on your employ uh, that are undocumented and not permitted to legally be permitted to work for you. Um, if that were to occur, um, you just need to be nimble and ready to respond. Uh, and, and the best way to do it first is taking precautionary measures up front regarding, uh, uh, again, cause it's not, we're not just talking DACA recipients. We're talking right. about whatever legislative reform might happen here. Um, and again, because there's increased compliance audits, because there are increased raids and potential employer arrests, this is not the time to stick your head in the sand, right? I mean, if, if I were on this podcast 10 years ago before anyone heard of the word podcast, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily have said stick your head in the sand, but there was an approach that a lot of people took, which was, you know, go ahead and risk it. And and depending on the industry you're in, um, it, it's going to be better to beg for forgiveness than ask permission, right? Sure. Uh, and that's not that's not the situation you can be in today. So uh, employers need to do self audits of of their I nine forms. They need to really make sure that they're working with uh, legal counsel or people who know what they're doing regarding immigration to make sure their onboarding process is, is accurate. If e verify comes into play, um, you better follow it. Um, and if you determine that 
one of your employees is undocumented or if you're rumors, substantiated rumors, or there's evidence that leads you to suspect that. And it's not just, you know, gossip, but it's actual rumors uh, or it's actual substantiated information uh, that, that can be relied upon. You better work with your counsel to determine what your options are. And you can't just stick your head in the sand. Yeah. So I go back to a word that we talked a lot about in the last podcast that you were on unpredictable, right? Yeah. It's, it still seems to be the key word for, for this administration and, and what's happening is from day to day, from week to week, uh, we just we don't have that certainty uh, that that we could expect from maybe other administrations in the past, or it's, a or yeah. normal administration, if you will. And it is it is like a fire hose, man. Every day, <laughs> every day, there's something new in one of these areas we've talked about that that requires us to update our the advice that we're giving our clients and and our, our training tools. Man, there it is a, a boon for those of us in the information sharing field because there's a lot of information to be shared, and it's. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of it is very difficult to predict. Yeah, so no no shortage of social media content then, right? <laughs> uh, can we make some predictions on the state level? Sure, let's go for it. Yeah, how about paid family leave? So lawmakers in Salem have been signaling an interest in implementing that. Uh, so how would you say the Trump administration's support on the federal level might impact it here in Oregon? Yeah, well, so looking at this from a couple different angles, Greg, I know you're, you've been in Salem, obviously, a lot the last couple of weeks as the, the session has kicked off. Uh, from my contacts that I have had, there seems to be no rumbling about anything coming up in 2018 on the pay, paid lit family leave front. Yeah, there will be a bill introduced on the House side, but the Senate has signaled that they won't they won't hear it uh, in this short session. This is really more uh, a session to kind of do some housekeeping and, and cleaning up some things. So yeah. we don't expect to see it in 2018, but we definitely expect to see it in 2019. Yeah, yeah. From what I understand, and maybe this is a subject for a different podcast, but uh, very few, if any, proposals out of Salem would be impacting employers in 2018. Um, there's one something about contractors being on the hook for subcontractors not paying their employees wages that might pass and some other little things like that. But from a paid family leave perspective, um, so the Trump administration, again, this is one of these where there's mixed signals all over the place about what they're going to propose or, or what might be proposed uh, or what they would support. Um, the, the the president's uh, second first lady, his daughter, has made some comments about how she supports paid family leave and the administration does. Right. Um, but that, that a lot of it seems to be lip service. The proposals that have been put forth um, – were very um, not what workers advocates were looking for. They're on the federal level. These were things like, hey, employers might get the ability to, um, or if they provide paid family leave under these circumstances, they'd get these benefits potentially in these offsets. But a lot of it would be, you know, um, uh, voluntary compliance and and not very structured. Certainly nothing like, um, you know, a Portland paid family leave or uh, or sure. the Oregon Family Leave Act or something like that. So, in the absence of federal action on this, I, my prediction would be in the absence of federal action over the next year, because I don't think there's going to be anything meaningful, nothing that's going to be uh, um, handcuffing employers. Uh, I would guess this will get a lot of traction in Salem in in uh, 2019, um, and you'll start to see buzz for it probably right in the fall of 2018 as as you start signaling what's going to come up in the. Uh, in the next session. You mean people might be talking about this during the elections? It might come up. A, a campaign topic? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Well, all right. 
Well, uh, so we're going to mark that one down as a prediction as well. So, although I, I kind of feel like we need to handicap that one. That seems like a pretty safe bet, but that, we'll let you go with that one. So it'll be like the flying car. Yeah, thank you. Um, all right. So as we wrap things up, looking ahead, uh, 2018, 2019, um, what kind of predictions are we willing to make about the Trump administration? Well, um, so this is sort of secondary for the administration, but uh, there is now a fifth Supreme Court justice that is more business friendly than not uh, in Neil Gorsuch, who was uh, who was installed on the court in this past year. Um, and uh, there are a couple employment law cases that are up that are teed up right now. Um, and I, and they will, I think, fall in employers favor. Uh, the big one is going to be argued in late February. Uh, ostensibly, it doesn't have anything to do with private sector employers. It would really it would cut the legs out from under public sector unions and their ability to force employees to uh, contribute to their coffers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that will have a cascading effect with employers in that uh, public sector unions are usually one of the main proponents of legislation and regu- regulatory proposals at the state and federal level all across the st- all across the country, all across sectors, all across industries for very pro-worker um uh, new laws and they're not going to have the money at their disposal in the coming four or five years to do that as as rapidly so um that number one i think will impact employers and that we're going to see fewer pieces of legislation benefiting employers uh that are sponsored by public sector unions yeah um so that's number one um i would say number two we're going to see a continued um scrapping of regulations there there are um, a lot of technical stuff that's gone on behind the scenes. There was one even a couple of weeks ago where uh, the Department of Justice put out a memo internally instructing their agencies not to use interpretive guidance when they're going after businesses for alleged violations of the law. And this will impact civil rights and labor laws as well. Um, and employers, there's nothing really day-to-day for employers to, to do about that other than just knowing and feeling confident that um, regu- regulatory bodies are being hamstrung more and more by this administration and their ability to take drastic action against them uh, that um, Congress hasn't passed. Mm. So regulatory bodies are going to be, at the federal level, uh, less and less inclined to um, take action against employers, which is generally a good thing. and it's, but it's also going to again create this breach that's going to be filled in by the states. And Oregon is definitely one that's paying attention to these sorts of things, and will will be there to backfill uh, and create hoops where federal government's taking them away. Um, the third prediction, I guess, I'd have is that uh, we're just we're just going to see more, more, more things that are unpredictable. So that that's one that that's a pretty easy one. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to guarantee you that one's going to come true. But uh, I, there's just going to be, you know, who could have predicted the Me Too movement a year ago? Sure. Who could have? Um, we could have predicted the um, uh, the tip pooling um, stuff getting advanced, but we wouldn't have predicted it getting out in the mainstream. Um, so I, I think we're going to see um, a year from now if we we look back. Um, some other other things that employers are um, not uh, cognizant of right now, which really just means, and, and again, I like I said, it's a fire hose out there. Every day there's new stuff, and I think employers have to be more vigilant than ever. And this isn't just lip service towards information sharing um, uh, groups like yours and, and mine as well, really. But, um, you know, we let me put this in perspective. Um, I write a monthly column for our, our firm, top 
employment law news stories, workplace law news stories you need to know about. And when I first started doing this in uh, uh, you know 2016 or so, we would come up with three to five per month. Um, the one for January had 18 uh, fr- from just January 2018, 18 wow. of them. And the average for 2017, there were between uh, 12 and 15 per month. And these are the biggest stories that all, just about all of them impact all employers. So really, it's, it, it's a call to all employers out there to not stick their head in the sand when it comes to new and breaking regulations and, and ways you might have to adapt and change the way you uh, you conduct your policies and, and conduct your your everyday human resources activities. Yeah, so that was a, a slow pitch softball, I think, that you just predicted. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you on the hot seat for one now. Yeah. Do you think the president makes it to the 2020 elections? Yes, I do. Okay. I do, and here's why. I'll get a little. Uh, so my my major in college was political science. Um, so I feel like I, I have a little Wait, bit of expertise. Not pre-law? Because we need to talk about that then. Um, <laughs> do I actually have a, a law degree is what you're asking. Um, it was uh, pre-law with political science. Oh, okay. All right. Good, co- good recovery. Yeah. Um, no, but but here's the thing. And I, and I, I sort of talk about this often. You know, um, if you look back, let's look back at the last time a president was impeached with uh, Bill Clinton. If you had taken the, the, the sins he was guilty of committing, um, the underlying problems, but the uh, uh, alleged obstruction of justice and lying to Congress and lying in a deposition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, who would have predicted that the, um, uh, I mean, it's very easy to predict at that time that the law and order party Republicans were wanting to kick him out of office and the de- Democrats were standing behind, beside him and behind him. Um, if the exact same scenario had occurred when George W. Bush was president, you would have seen the exact reverse and the Republicans all defending him and the Democrats all attacking him, which means that impeachment is 100 percent a political political um, action. It has nothing to do with actual crimes and misdemeanors. OK. Yeah. And so as long as the Republicans in Congress are getting what they want out of out of Trump, um, no matter what the Mueller report kicks out, um, the Republicans are going to support him. And uh, and Democrats are going to continue to attack him. And if the Democrats control Congress, um, both houses of Congress with enough numbers to um, impeach, they would do it. But um, I don't know if it'll get to that number from a raw numerical standpoint. So my prediction that he will make it to 2020 has nothing to do with what the Mueller report's going to kick out and what other scandals are going to rise tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Um, It's just that impeachment is such a political problem. process. And right now the Republicans don't seem inclined to uh, hold this president's feet to the fire on political means, given that they're getting what they want out of them. Sure. All right. Well, we're going to have to check back in a year. I I think Rich is angling for another appearance here in a a year or so, which is great. Hold hold the calendar for next February. (laughs) So in the meantime, Rich, if uh, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, I know they can follow you on Twitter at PDX Labor Lawyer. Yep. Uh, is there another way that uh, people could get in touch with you that you'd want them to get in touch with you? You know, that's probably the easiest because my name, I, I would give you my email address, but hopefully people who are listening to this in the car or something right now um, aren't, aren't wouldn't break out a pen and start writing down how to spell my last name. Let's but, hope not. Uh, if you go to labor, uh, I'm sorry, fisherphillips.com um, and look up the hardest name to spell, Menegello, you'll find me and you can find my bio and my phone number and... Uh, an email address. Feel free to reach out to me if you have questions about any of these things. And again, the Twitter's the best 
means probably for paying attention to what's going on because I pump out something at least once a day that our firm writes or produces that's going to impact all employers. And if you go to our website as well at fisherphillips.com, you'll have the ability to sign up for legal alerts and newsletters and all that sort of thing as well. Fantastic. Well, Rich, thanks again. We're going to take another break and we'll be right back. Get your staff food handler trained and certified by Oregon's highest quality training provider. Orla provides easy-to-follow, interactive training that is valid statewide for three years. Employees can get the state-mandated food handler card they need on their schedule with online courses available 24-7. And now for only $9. Go to OregonFoodHandler.com today. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. This is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. Currently in the Oregon legislature, we have a couple of bills. House Bill 4088 is one of those. It's our music bill, right? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it actually passed out of the House on a 49 to nothing vote. We had one member who was absent, so it's over on the Senate right now in a committee, and it's going to be listened to hopefully soon here. I think Monday is uh, the time that we're going to hear that, Monday the 19th of February, so we'll keep you updated. Uh, Bill Perry, our contract lobbyist, Jason Brandt, our president and CEO, and myself actually spoke with Senate President Peter Courtney about a week and a half ago about the bill. And so we're hoping that with uh, kind of that information in hand, we'll get this bill moving through uh, rather quickly. We have a couple of other bills related to the federal tax reform, Senate Bill 1528 and Senate Bill 1529. Uh, Can you tell me about those? 1529 is actually a bill that allows Oregon to tax the money that corporations bring back from overseas. And that one went through the Senate uh, fairly easily, so it's over on the House side. 1528, they actually delayed the vote on that. Uh, Senator Chuck Riley had to go in for emergency gallbladder surgery. Oh, my gosh. And so they're delaying the vote because I'm guessing they're going to need his yes on that. But essentially, uh, it responds to the federal tax overhaul, and it would make additional changes to an Oregon tax break for people with income from pass-through businesses like partnerships, LLCs, or S-corporations, which uh, a lot of our, our restaurant owners are in that camp. Uh, The Senate Democrats don't want to replicate that deduction in Oregon uh, because it'd be layered on top of the existing benefit. And so what they're looking to do is scale back that tax break and eliminate two industry sectors that would include doctors, lawyers, and some other professionals. Uh, Right now, their concern is that it's been Uh, used more by those doctors and lawyers than it has been by the manufacturing and export companies that it was intended to benefit. So it's going to limit the tax break to the first $250,000 in income. And then, as I mentioned, eliminate it entirely for uh, doctors, lawyers, and some other professionals. Now, the good news is that on the flip side, the plan would expand the break to include sole proprietors. And it would also help those people who are facing higher taxes due to the federal tax laws, $10,000 cap on deductions for state taxes. And the way they're going to do that is sell up to $14 million in tax credits a year and put that money into need-based college scholarships that they already award to students who study in-state. And since Congress didn't limit the deductibility of most charitable contributions, Supporters of this hope that those taxpayers could claim a deduction equal to the tax credit purchase on their federal returns. I know that's a lot of information to take in, right? But But we're going to keep you. Yeah, it is important. We're going to keep you updated on what's going on there. So uh, the final item we have for our advocacy watch is the possibility of a gross receipts tax in the city of Portland. 
Um, voters voted down Measure 97, which was a statewide gross receipts tax. But it but, popped back up in Portland. But it popped back up in Portland. That's right. And so uh, supporters are gathering signatures for that and looking to put it on the ballot. Um, it's being circulated as a clean energy and justice measure. It'll be a 1% tax on the Portland-based revenues of large retailers that are operating in the city. And you might ask, how what's large? What's considered? a large? Yeah. I, of course, I knew you were going to ask that question. So uh, you'd have to have global sales of more than a billion dollars, or be a subsidiary or franchisee of a company that has a billion dollars uh, in sales, and in-city sales of five hundred thousand dollars or more. Um, the money raised by the tax would be placed in a new fund that pays for renewable energy programs, which would include a specific carve out for projects that benefit low income Portlanders, job training, uh, aimed at communities of color, women, and other traditionally underrepresented and disadvantaged workers, local food production, and uh, a few other things. So it's a, it's a very green ask that they're making here for these <laughs> but uh we'll keep you updated on that the portland business alliance is tracking that one very carefully and uh, so are we so we'll let you know what's going on with that well please keep those emails coming uh you can send it to info at oregon rla.org let us know not only whatever government affairs questions you might have but any opinions please don't be afraid to share those with us and uh, what's going on in your area we always appreciate hearing from people on that before we close the cast for today, we want to take the opportunity to make sure you're getting the most out of your membership. And to help you do that, we like to highlight a benefit you may or may not be aware of. For example, did you know that members get free registration for the upcoming restaurant financing webinar? This webinar focuses on essential information and strategies to successfully navigate restaurant financing from inception through one or more liquidity events. This opportunity is presented by Davis Wright Tremaine and Cherry Baum and is normally $200 to register. However, Davis Wright Tremaine has waived the registration fee for Orla members. Sign up, guys. It's a really great opportunity. It sounds like a, an amazing chance for people to hear some great information that you'd normally be paying a lot more for. To register or for more information, go to oregonrla.org backslash webinars. And if you're not a member, you can also visit OregonRLA.org where you can join and start taking advantage of our numerous benefits. I'd like to say thank you again to Rich Minigello from Fisher Phillips and to Sarah Shank from the Orla team for joining me today. I am your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening. <laughs>